Today, we're going to focus on a new word. We have been studying some key words this summer that I believe every Christian ought to know. And today, the word we're studying is adoption. This is the fifth word. We've been uh, studying several. This is the fifth word, ultimately, of nine that we're going to study. So we're right in the middle of the series. If you're a part of a 242 group that is studying during the week, uh, then you're taking these words deeper and you're discussing them with uh, your other brothers and sisters in Christ. And so as your groups meet week by week by week, know that, that uh, we, are, we are praying for you, praying that this is meaningful to you and life-changing for you. Today, this word adoption. With each of these words, um, we're calling this adoption, he makes you his child. And if you haven't done so already, find Galatians chapter 4. We're going to be looking at the first seven verses in that chapter. But each week we've been taking the word and asking three questions around that word. What does this word mean? What does this word tell us about God? And how should this word affect the way that we live? And so for us as, a, as Christians, we don't want this to be merely an academic exercise where we listen to some facts or something of interest and we leave unchanged. We want these truths to be life-changing, and so we want to ask the Holy Spirit to apply it to our lives. So just one more time, would you pray with me before we begin? Father, we are thankful for what you have done in our nation over the decades. We're thankful that we are able to worship freely, knowing that we have brothers and sisters around the world who can't do what we just did without fear of reprisal or persecution or oppression in some way. Father, we have a team in Spokane, and Lord, I know that they have prayed for us this morning, and I know that we are praying for them. We pray that you would grant them favor this week with every person that they encounter, and that the gospel will run freely and deeply into the hearts that they meet. Lord, would you take your word this morning and make it come alive for us? Holy Spirit, will you awaken in us just a fresh sense of who we are in Christ, and what this word adoption means. For we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. First question, what is adoption? What is adoption? We have a popular understanding of adoption from our own culture and from our own society and for many of us from our own experience. Some of you have been adopted or you are adopting or you have been a foster parent or a foster child. And so this, this has special meaning to you. But, but today we're focusing on what it means to us, every one of us, as believers. In Galatians chapter 4, verse 1, the Bible says, and this is Paul writing, excuse me, <clears throat> now I say that the heir, as long as he is a child, does not differ at all from a slave, though he is master of all but as under guardians and stewards until the time appointed by the Father. Even so, we, when we were children, were in bondage under the elements of the world. But when the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. And theirs is our word. Some of you may remember about 
three years ago on a Sunday night, I talked about my own experience with adoption. When I was young, my mother and my birth father uh, divorced. Uh, by the age of seven, I didn't see my birth father again till about the age of 27 when I tracked him down. And we forged a relationship that continued to grow until he passed away about six years ago. After that, what I remember is my mom was a single mom. We lived on the outskirts of San Antonio, Texas. It was hot there in the summers. Uh, we learned to run barefoot on gravel uh, all the time in the summertime. Didn't seem to bother us. Our feet got tough somehow. But it still was tough when we found asphalt. Now, fortunately, not a lot of the roads were paved. But, but when you hit asphalt, that was hot. That was really hot. And uh, so I had a Huckleberry Finn childhood just running around shell gravel and, and uh, pin oak and, and uh, fishing and killing snakes and all the things that you did out there. My mom uh, met and married a man who was in uh, pilot training at Randolph Air Force Base. Uh, his name was Robert Pusick. He ultimately adopted me as his son. And so he gave me his name and he made me as much his son as if he had been my birth father. Now, <clears throat> there were several changes that took place in my life. I went from being fatherless to having a father. <clears throat> I went from having one name to having a new name. To help you see this, I wanted you to see my first grade report card. Any of y'all still have your first grade report card? I do. I have mine. There it is. And at the top, you'll see my last name first, Donnelly, and my first name was Donovan. Donovan Sykes Donnelly. That was actually the full name of my birth father. I was the second one to have that name. And, um, and, uh, and my grandfather was born a McBurney, and his parents separated in 1912, divorced. When his mom remarried, he just took his, his father's name. So we had this happen several times in our family, which makes it interesting if you're into tracing dead relatives. But that's a whole other subject. And so I started out in life with the name Donovan Donnelly, uh, double D, that was it. And, and now I want you to see how I was behaving in the first grade. So let's open up that report card and see, see what you see in there. And um, if you look at the right side of the, the left side of the column, you see what an academic I had started out to be in the first grade. Now, in my defense, let me say this. I spent a lot of time in daycare before I hit first grade. And nobody told me that there was a significant difference between daycare and first grade. I thought first grade was more of the same. How wrong I was. And so you see those, those grades up there. And then uh, just to, so you can see it more clearly, look at the next slide. You'll see my conduct grades. Again, I think this is a little harsh. I mean, for a six-year-old, what? What? D, F, D, 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 D. So I was consistent. Go ahead and look at the next slide. You can see the social characteristics of this six-year-old. And, um, and I, note, I note several things there in particular. Uses time wisely. Uses time wisely. I thought I was. Uh, an X, by the way, means needs to improve. And I was consistent there for the entire school year. Uh, the third item there says respects authority. I spent a lot of time with authority. I liked them, and uh, it was very important to me. Exercise is self-control. No one else controlled me. 
I had great self-control. I did exactly what I wanted to do. And then controls talking. I really have a problem with that because I think that's the teacher's job in the class. Everybody was talking, you know, and, and she made them stop and whatever. I didn't think that was my responsibility. But I was a social creature. And, and so here was this six-year-old, Donovan Donnelly, and his world had been turned upside down, and he didn't have a, a father in his life. Now, I got to say that my grandfather moved next door to us at that stage in our life. Uh, he passed away a couple years ago. He was almost 101, but he became very much a, an influence in my life. Um, and many people who know our family, and you know my grandfather would say that I am very much like him temperamentally in terms of personality and that sort of thing. And so um, he moved in literally next door. We had a big ditch between our, our homes, and he built a little bridge across it. I could go see my grandfather any time that I wanted. Tremendous influence. Now, um, let's go ahead and look at what happens next. We move now to the sixth grade. What's happened between the first grade and the sixth grade is that I was adopted. I have a new name, Donovan Puchik. That's the correct way to say it. We say Pusick most of the time. Uh, the man who adopted me was originally from Portland, Oregon. Uh, his parents came from Czechoslovakia in 1932. And, um, and so Grandma uh, spoke with a very heavy Eastern European accent. And, um, and so in the sixth grade, uh, we also had never gone to church when I was growing up. Uh, when he adopted me, uh, we began taking classes in his church, which was a Roman Catholic church. And so I went through all the catechisms when I was old enough to know what, what uh, some of that meant and was baptized and became a Roman member of the Roman Catholic church. And so I was going to a Catholic school. Now, being in the service, we moved around a lot. Um, we, uh, we moved all over the country. We moved overseas. And, um, and so I wound up going to seven different elementary schools and two different high schools. Uh, growing up, but my name was was different, and my grades improved, and I finally figured out what this school thing was about. This wasn't just an extended uh, daycare program, so um, and I had some help there. Now, adoption, at that point, I had a new birth certificate and everything, and some of y'all understand that. I had a new birth certificate, had a new name, and I thought it was really cool, and I was excited about it as a kid. What you, what you need to understand is that adoption in our culture, those things that I just talked about, is very different from adoption as Paul describes it here in the New Testament. There are some things that are very much the same, but, but adoption in, in the Bible is very, has some unique characteristics that you and I would not be familiar with today. So let me describe some of those. How is adoption in the New Testament different? Well, first of all, only Paul speaks of adoption in the Bible. Uh, it, is a, it is a legal process, and it is tied exclusively to Roman law. Jews did not adopt. In Judaism, they did not have an adoption process. They had a way of, of succession where property could be handed to someone outside the family. Uh, Eliezer Damascus was Abraham's servant, and there was at one point Abraham thought he would inherit everything. Um, but there was the idea of someone who was not a blood relation coming into the family, being adopted, and in that way um, becoming part of the family was unknown. They had foster, fosterage. They took care of foster children, but they didn't adopt. 
They did other things. So Roman law is the key to understanding adoption in the New Testament. The purpose of the process was different. In our culture, when we think about adoption, we think about the welfare of children. In the New Testament time, adoption, particularly in the Roman world, had very little to do with the welfare of a child. It had everything to do with the extension of the family name and the preservation of the family name. It was a family thing, truly. And so the Roman culture was very focused on preserving the family. And the other great difference in adoption is the role of the father. And this is significant. You need to hear this. When you were born into a family, you were under the authority of that father for the rest of your life. You were not free of that father's authority when you came of age. You were not free of that father's authority when you, you reached a certain, you know, 20 or 21 or 18 or 12. You were under the father's authority until he died. And so when you were adopted, the, you were transferred from the authority of one father to another. Father had absolute control over the family. Amen? Well, I, I'm just kidding. Had absolute authority. He could take any member of the family, and if he needed to raise a little cash, he could sell them into slavery. You know, this son gave you a little lip or a problem, sell them into slavery. And, and, and Roman law, and this is a very ancient part of this process, Roman law had a provision to where a father could only do that to the same child three times. So if they did manage to get out of slavery once and get their freedom, the father could say, well, let's make some more money and sell them again. You could only do that three times. And listen, that became the foundation of the Roman adoption process. Because once a father has sold that child three times, it was, and this is all symbolic, but this other man could step in and say, all that he can do with this child, he's done. He is no longer in relationship to this man. He is no longer his son and I'm claiming him as my son. So there were two parts to the Roman process. They had to sever the authority and the rule and the rights of the birth father. And that included your debts, if you had any debts, if you had any, your whole entire way of life that you used to have was cut off, but most of it had to do with your relationship to your father. And then a whole new relationship was established with this adopted father. And the process was these two men would meet and there would be witnesses. And this man, essentially, the birth father, would sell the child three times into slavery to this new man, and he would set them free three times. And at the end of that little exercise, and there was money involved, the adopted father would say, he is no longer this man's son, he's my son. And the other man wouldn't contest it, and the adoption would be, would be complete. It's really interesting. And so this new father then would take this son, place him into the family with all of the rights and privileges of a natural-born son. Now, you've got to remember that in Roman society, they had major class um, systems, and you could not break into the patrician class, for example. If you were a slave, you could not break into the... You could not work your way up. You could not move around in society. You were... You are what you are. But a man could adopt a slave, a patrician, a wealthy, influential, 
person with a great name and family could adopt a slave, bring them into their family, and that slave, once adopted, was no longer known as a slave but became known as a patrician. And that was their identity, and their old identity was gone. And it was permanent. It could never, ever be undone. I know in our society sometimes adoptions are undone. That was impossible in Roman society. could never be done. And so here's the definition I want you to hear when I say what is adoption. Adoption is that act by which God the Father places sinful human beings into his family and grants them the same status as his own son. Now, we're going to look at that more closely, but that's what it is. He takes us, who are sinners, who have no part in the family of God, and he places us into it as children, as his children, with all the rights and privileges of Jesus Christ, his only natural son. Now, how is that received? How is adoption received? There are two verses I want you to see. One is from the very passage that we're reading, just a few verses before At the end of Galatians 3, verse 26, it says, You you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. You are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. Now, ladies, I want to explain something here. In the New Testament, when it talks about the sons of God, sometimes it says children of God. But when Paul talks about the sons of God, he includes males and females. Now, this was different than Roman society. Adoption typically focused on males. But in the Bible, when he says we are all sons of God by faith, that's how we receive it, by faith in Jesus Christ, he's including men and women. You say, well, pastor, how do you know that? Well, you may, if you're in your Bible, you can look at verse 26 of chapter 3, Galatians. For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. You hear that? Sons of God. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now that's within two verses of him saying you are all sons through faith in Jesus Christ. So if you're a son, you can be male, female, slave, free, uh, Greek, Jewish, it doesn't matter. You're a son, you're a child. Of God, And so son is used in this sense in a way that encompasses all humanity, uh, regardless of your gender. So how is it received? It's received by faith. John 1.12 makes this even more clear. But as many as received him, Jesus, as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God to those who believe in his name. There the word receive is juxtaposed with the word believe. You see that? Received and believe. What does it mean to receive? It means to believe. It means to trust. It means to rest in his name. So that's what adoption is. It is this change of status from not being part of the family of God to being put into the family of God, and it's received by faith. Question number two. What does adoption tell us about God? Verse 4, Galatians 4, verse 4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law that we might receive the adoption 
as sons. The adoption tells us three things about God. It tells us first why he saves us. It tells us why he saved us. Have you ever wondered why he goes through this entire process of sending his son, his son dying on the cross? You say, well, it's because God loves us. Well, why does he save us? Why does he do it? It says in this verse that he redeemed us in verse 5 to redeem those who are under the law that we might receive the adoption of sons. If you see that word that in your Bible, you could almost circle that or underline that because he, that is a purpose clause. It's telling you the reason for the redeeming activity. And so he redeemed us. Now, you remember we studied the word redemption. And if you were here, you'll remember that the word redeem means to set someone in bondage free by the payment of a price. And so we, we know that word. And he says, to redeem those who were under the law, to set us free, for what purpose? That we might receive the adoption as sons. And so what does adoption tell us? It tells us the why of salvation. He wanted you in his family. Second thing it tells us, it tells us how much we matter, how much we matter. In verse 4, it says God sent forth his son. And then verse 5, that we might receive the adoption as sons. He sent his son so you and I could be sons. Now, how does that tell us something of how much we matter to God. When he sent his son to redeem us, his son was the price that set us free. Paul would later write to the Corinthians, you have been bought with a price. How do I know that you matter to God? Because he took what was most precious to him and gave his son so that you could become his child. I think that if you are putting price tags on yourself, and we've gone through this exercise before as a church, that for some of you, that ought to move you deeply. If you think of yourself as not worth very much, as not important, as not valuable, because God values you that much. How much are you worth? Look at Jesus. How much did it cost God to bring you into his family? Look at Jesus. You matter to him. The third thing this tells us about God, not just why he saves us, how much we matter, but thirdly, what he wants from us. What he wants from us. Have you ever wondered, God, what do you want from me? And this tells us what he wants from us. Adoption is really almost too much to expect from God. It's totally unexpected. More than forgiveness, more than being made right, more than being set free, more than going to heaven. Adoption goes way beyond those things. He didn't have to do that. He could have just saved us. He could have just forgiven our sins. He could have just said, when you die now, you're going to go to heaven. He could have just stopped there. But adoption is over the top because it's so much more. He didn't have to do that. It doesn't seem necessary for our salvation. It exposes the heart of God. He just pulls back the screen so that you can see what he really cares about. Adoption is, is way beyond what we should expect. 
Now, a couple weeks ago, we studied the word reconciliation. Now, reconciliation, when two people are at war, reconciliation is when the cause of the conflict is taken out of the way. You remember that? Two people are at war, and the cause of the conflict is removed. And God has reconciled us to himself by taking away our sin, the cause of the conflict between us. Now, now reconciliation by itself tells me that God wants a relationship with me, doesn't it? To be reconciled with someone means you want a relationship with them. And that God reconciled us through Jesus by taking away our sin says he wants a relationship with us. Adoption tells us what kind of relationship he wants. He doesn't want an employee-boss relationship. He doesn't want a master-slave relationship. He wants a father-child relationship with you and with me. And so it tells us what matters most to him is that you would respond to him as a child to his or her father. This is what he wants from you. Sometimes you think he wants perfect obedience. He wants moral perfection. He wants you to say the right things, do the right things, go to the right places, be with the right people, that he wants all these good things for you to do. You, you should be all about good things. But what does he really want from you? You could do all those things and never give him what he wants the most. You realize that? You could do all the right stuff, come to church every Sunday, be in Sunday school class every week, memorize the entire Bible, go to seminary. You could do all those things and never give what he wants the most, which is the affection of a child for their father. This is why the Apostle John writes in 1 John 3, verse 1, Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called children of God. He wants a family relationship. This is what adoption tells us about God. Third question, how should adoption affect the way that I live? How should it affect the way I live? So we have this theological word adoption. We've looked at the definition. He brings us into the family, and, and based on Roman adoption, I have nothing uh, except this relationship to the Father. I have nothing apart from this relationship to the Father. And this relationship is going to persist as long as the Father lives. And that's glorious because our Father doesn't die. But how should that affect how I live today? Um, Galatians 4, verse 6. And because you are sons, remember that's everybody, ladies. Because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his Son into your hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. So how should adoption affect the way that I live? Now, if you were just to sit down, you and I, over a cup of coffee, and discuss what it means to say God is Father, you and I could work out some things. I really think we could. We could just talk about what fathers do and what fathers are about. Fathers take care of us. Fathers protect us. Fathers provide for us. And we could turn to Scripture and see all kinds of statements like that. The very hairs on our head are numbered. If the Father clothes the grass of the field and takes care of the birds in the field, how much more will he take care of you as his child? If you as fathers know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will he give good gifts to those who ask him? I mean, all this language is there in the Scripture. 
describing the relationship of the father to the son and how it should affect the way I live. Well, if my father is like a father, I should rest in his care. I should rest in his provision. I should rest in his wisdom. I should rest in him. I should believe that he really loves me like that. And that would affect the way that I live. That's not what I want to emphasize, but I just want you to hear that. I think that if I understand my adoption, I will value other Christians as family. If he's our father and you're a son of God, you're a daughter of God, and I'm a son of God, what does that make us? Brothers, sisters, brothers and sisters. We're family. And you know, that is why, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make a shameless plug for our small group Bible studies. That is why I believe our small group Bible studies afford something to you that even your own blood relations cannot provide you outside of the church. I believe one of the challenges that we face as a church is recognizing that my Bible study group is a family community. But it's, a, it's my eternal family. It's a spiritual family. And that relationship is very important to me, and it needs to be very important to me. Sometimes I think that we come to church for what my needs, based on what my needs are. I need my group, or I need the church, and I need those things. That's, that's fine. I, I don't have any issue with that. But sometimes our social needs are met by other family members who may not even be Christians or friends who may not be Christians and people out in the community who may not be Christians. And because all my social needs are met, because they look after me and they care for me, I really don't need my Bible study group. I don't need them. And yet if I understand adoption, they're my brothers and sisters in Christ. This family, my spiritual family, should be the most precious one I have. And I need to understand that there are things that are going to happen in the context of my spiritual family to help me grow, to help me understand, to help me change, to help me through tough times that no other family on earth can provide for me. Well, that's not what I want to emphasize. How should adoption affect the way I live? If I understand adoption, it should affect my life in at least three ways. And these are things that I, I believe are important to us as a church. Number one. If I understand my adoption, I will reject the lie that God is counting on me to stop sinning and live a moral life. I am no longer a slave who must always get it right. Now, that's a mouthful. I did that on purpose. Verse 7 says, you are no longer a slave but a son. If you're living under the law, if you're living under rule keeping as a way of life, then when you mess up, you're beginning to doubt your relationship to God. You're beginning to think, like a slave under a master, that, that there's going to be immediate retribution, that, that somehow God's going to get me. And there's a fear there. There's a fear that comes under bondage. There's a fear that comes under an attitude of slavery that does not exist for a child in a relationship to their father, not the kind of father described in Scripture. And, and so some of us are living our life in relationship with God thinking he has all of these expectations for me that you've got to meet, and you never meet them, and so you feel like he's never happy with you. And that's a lie. Even in this text, he, he says 
that, that a child doesn't differ from a slave as long as he's not of age. He's, he, he, he's master of everything. You have this relationship with God. You have everything that he has. You're an heir with Jesus Christ to what lies ahead in the future. But you live like you're just a groveling servant just trying to do your best to make God happy. This person's under guardians and stewards until the time appointed by the Father. He says in verse 3, Even so we, when we were children, were in bondage under the elements of the world. Don't do that. Don't go there. Don't be a part of that. Don't dress that way. Don't act that way. Don't sing those songs. Don't listen to that. And it's all about what it should be to be a religious person because if you're not a religious person, God can't possibly be happy with you. You're no longer a slave but a son. Your father is always pleased with you. There is such a thing as chastisement. We've talked about this before. One of our words later is going to be the word judgment. But let me talk to you just briefly. If you are a son of God, he is going to chastise you. He is going to bring you to heaven to be with him forever. And if you are ignoring him or disobeying him, as any earthly father will, he is going to correct you. But when that correction comes, in whatever form it comes, and it can be pretty heavy. I, I'm not arguing with you about that. But it is not coming at you as punishment in the sense of you paying for your sin. Because when Jesus died on the cross, he drank all your sins down and all the punishment your sins deserve. There is nothing left to be punished. So when God brings discipline into our lives to train us, to teach us, it's not even always because you've done something wrong. Sometimes it's just to teach you, to grow you, to stretch you, to teach you to come and turn to your Father. Oh, God, help me. I don't know where to turn. But he's not punishing you. You've never been punished for one single sin in your life. Not one. Or the cross is not true. I want to read this quote from J.I. Packer. Uh, Dr. Packer wrote a book called Knowing God about 40 some odd years ago. He said, if you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, Find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life, it means that he does not understand Christianity very well at all. Father is the Christian name for God. Number two. If I understand my adoption, I will live by his leading and not by my agenda. Romans 8 verse 14 says, For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear. We just talked about that. But you receive the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. So those of us who know Christ, we come to a place as he grows us, as he matures us, that we subject ourselves to his leading and we rejoice in following his lead. We rejoice in the things that please him. It is part of our growth as sons and daughters of God. He leads us. It's not about my agenda. It's not about God having to please me. It becomes about the child wanting to please the father. Third thing. 
If I understand my adoption, I will experience an intense longing for him. He has sent the spirit of Jesus into my heart. And this was found in verse 6. Now listen to this very carefully. Some of you are asking, how can I know if I have been adopted by God? Listen to verse 6. And because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. Now, that's almost the identical language we read in Romans 8, where he talks about, you didn't receive the spirit of bondage, you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. So in Romans, the Holy Spirit is called the spirit of adoption, but it's the same thing here. You are sons Because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of a son into your hearts. What is the spirit of adoption? What what difference would it make if you truly understood that the Holy Spirit is the spirit of adoption? He says that when the Holy Spirit comes into your heart, He is sent into the heart, and so I know that whatever else this is, it is a heart-level encounter or experience with God. Not something with my head. It's not just an intellectual exercise. Oh, I believe those things about Jesus on the cross, and so I'm going to sign up and be a Baptist. No, this is different. This is something that God has done. This is something that's supernatural. The Holy Spirit is sent into the heart. And he's on a mission. He's a spirit of adoption. He wants you not only to know with your head that you are a son, he wants you to know with your heart that you are a son or daughter of God. And so he sends this spirit into your heart, and the result of this sending is that there's this crying of the heart, Abba, which is the Aramaic word for daddy, Abba, father, and it's a strong, deep, elemental, visceral cry, Father. It's the same word used when Jesus in Hebrews 5 prays, it says, with loud cries and tears. It's noisy cry. It's the same word used for Jesus on the cross where it says he cried aloud and bowed his head and gave up the spirit, gave up the ghost on the cross in Matthew 27. It is, it is this cry. Now, what's the significance of this cry? It changes everything. I'm not just trying to be a religious holy man or something. I'm just a son. I'm a daughter. When something goes wrong, I don't know. I had six kids in my house. I don't know if this ever happened to you, but at least several times a day when I was home, we would hear a shout for parental presence, depending on the nature of the problem. Because something was wrong. And they wanted someone to come in who could take care of it. They wanted someone to come in who could address it. And it was as natural for that child to cry out for their parent as any other aspect that comes naturally to us as children. And, and he says that when you and I have trusted Christ and we've rested in Christ, the spirit of his son is sent into our hearts crying, Father. And there should be this longing in you for your father, a desire for your father. When you go in to pray, you you should not 
allow yourself to get into these ruts, and we all do it, to get in these ruts where we're just checking off a list. God bless us when God bless us when God, I need a new job. God, I need this. Thank you, God. I'll see you in the, tomorrow morning. Instead, there's this, there's this sense of a, of a child coming to his or fa- her father, and there's a sense of confidence that my father loves me and will hear me when I call on him. And we can come, the Bible says, boldly because of that, confidently, shamelessly, we can come to our Father and call on Him. One of the great benefits of justification, one of our words, says in Romans 5, 1, having then been justified by faith, we have peace with God. And then it talks about access to this grace that we stand in. And that's a euphemism for access to the presence of God. As a Christian, you have this incredible access to the God of the universe, but he's not just the God of the universe. You have this access to the God who possesses all power and all authority, but he's not just a God of all power and all authority. You have access to your Father, this one who did everything possible to make you what you needed to be so that you could have a relationship with him. But he didn't want just any kind of relationship with you. He wanted you to be his child. Would you go to him as as his child? That's what he wants. That's what he desires. That's what he longs for from you and from me. Do you know the spirit of adoption? You can't work it up. It's not something you can just, just pretend to have. This is, this is serious. How do I know if I'm a son of God? Well, there's several criteria here. Those, as many as are, as are, as are uh, led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. I mean, we see this language all here. But, but it says in verse 6, this is the verse I read, and because you are sons, that's a fact. When you trust Christ, that is a fact. You are a son. But because of this, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts. He didn't want you just to know with your head. He wanted you to know with your heart that you're his child. Yeah, we're talking about a kind of assurance of salvation. It is the highest form of assurance when the spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. Do you know the spirit of adoption? Do you know anything of this Heart cry of a child for their father? Do you find that in your your walk, your Christian life, that you spend more time afraid that you're not getting it right than you are of just enjoying your father's acceptance of you? Do you spend more time trying to, to improve and make yourself better instead of just finding out what pleases my father? Do you spend all your time and energy trying to get God to do things for you rather than just sitting back and saying, God, here I am, send me? Do you know anything of this spirit of adoption? It's a very real presence in our heart, very real presence in our life. And he is there to confirm for us the fact of what God has accomplished in making us his children.